are at the fourth and last part of our series, and um, this really pulls it all together, this, this moment of learning together, because today the topic is legislating the spirit of the law. Starting with two questions. Question number one is practical, question number two is more philosophical. Practical question, this is a, is a case that I heard a number of years ago and have still not been able to track down. But the story, the, the story goes as follows, that um, a number of years ago, at the beginning of the, uh, of the establishment of the State of Israel, there was a fellow who was caught smuggling. He was smuggling um, various supplies over and, and uh, certain uh, um, chemicals over the, the Sinai um, border, the southern border of Israel, into the State of Israel. He was prosecuted by the state, and um, he pleaded and was acquitted for his um, crime based on the fact that, technically speaking, in Israel, it was not forbidden to smuggle over land. They looked into the law and they found that, in fact, the fellow was right. And the reason was because, at that time, Israel had adopted, based on the British parliamentary law, that had adopted British law, and Britain had made it illegal to smuggle anything over air or sea. But they had not mentioned land. And the reason was, because there was no land to smuggle over in England at that time. Now, you may argue underland through the channel, but not overland. Or, um, it, it did not exist. And so it raises an interesting thought experiment, which is what happens when you clearly know something is not meant to be? It is clearly meant to be illegal, yet it is, was not technically um, couched as such. So what do you do in such a circumstance? The, on, uh, the answer would be that you would clearly tighten that, that bolt and make sure that there's no longer a, loo a loophole. But the outcome of that would essentially be is that therefore any time you find something which is clearly in the spirit of the law incorrect, then what would you do? You would legislate it, which means it no longer becomes the spirit of the law. Right, so you've essentially, any time that there's an idea which is important, then you're going to no longer make it an idea, you'll make it a rule. And so then the question becomes, is, so what's left of the spirit of the law? Is there anything left of the spirit of the law today? That's, that, that's the question that, that, is, uh, that, that exists. That's the pr practical question number one. Pr philosophical question, which is question number two, is, is, a, is a question which I think we hear a number of times we feel discomfort with the way this is expressed. And let's try to, try to articulate what the discomfort is. There is a notion that uh, there is no space for morality or ethics outside of the Torah once the Torah was given. What does that mean? Think about this for a moment. Sefer Bereshis, the book of, of Genesis, talks about, as we learned about just a few weeks ago, is called Sefer Hayashar, is the book of the upright. Why? Because people found the right way to do things. And the argument which is made is that's all very nice and true when it was pre-Matan Torah. But come Parashas Yisroi, come the giving of the Torah, come Sinai, and now there is no longer a need to have such a moral compass anymore because anything which is moral will fall into the purview of what the Torah prescribed. Anything outside of that prescription no longer has any value. We've heard of this, this kind of ethic. We've heard of this kind of idea beforehand. And in a certain sense, it diminishes the space for the idea that there is something which we know to be innately and intuitively true. Almost as if that no longer matters anymore, no longer has any value. The question is, is, is there any value post-Sinai of the, what we've been learning about, which is the idea of there being a notion that God placed inside of us a moral compass which He expects us to be looking at, not just in the book itself. And that's, uh, and that's, uh, that's question number two, Moish. Well, ah, so it sounds like the Torah does call upon us to look upon our compass. So where this, this notion that nothing is outside the purview of halacha, where does, how does this all fit together? So it's interesting, I think, that these, yes, yeah, Tabi. What would be an issue of whether A, can you get, what should you do, and B is, can you get punished for it? Seems to me it's two different things. If you want, for the, for the Torah to be able to punish you, it's got to be laid out, like this fellow is doing, but, to be, but there's a different concept for which maybe in this world you don't get punished. Okay, so Tabi is saying, well, let's, Maybe it's more subtle, right? So it might not be that it's going to be law, but it might be what you should be doing, right? So we'll call it responsibility without accountability, perhaps. Um, so maybe, maybe that's the space that it exists in. That's a very, that's a very intriguing perspective. 
I, I, I just wonder if there's anything left that hasn't been legislated yet. And if it hasn't been, you see these two questions already at, at odds with each other because either everything's legislated and that's the law, or you say there's no space which hasn't been legislated and therefore that's the spirit of law. But if that's the case, then spirit of law exists beyond the law, even in a post-law giving experience. That's, that's the, the, what we're trying to, try to figure out. And this is the space that Judaism lives in. And it's, it's a space that any legal, legal system lives in. But I think it's fascinating how Judaism digests this. So it, for, for our, our studies today start with a really, I, I would say, beautiful idea. We're going to track an idea which was articulated actually in a footnote by, by Rabbi Chodon Wasserman, where Rabbi Chodon Wasserman was one of the preeminent um, Lithuanian um, Torah leaders. And uh, he actually was in America in the 90, late 1930s. Um, he was collecting for his institution and uh, he, was, uh, he actually returned to Europe. He did not want to abandon his, uh, his students and he, he, he was killed in Lithuania um, in Fort Nine um, by the Lithuanians and, um, and um, was one of the many who were killed in the Holocaust. He was a, he was a, uh, very, have a very precise and, um, and fascinating God al-Batara. He wrote many, many works um, very strong in his, in his perspectives. And in the beginning of what's called Kuntras de Re Sofrim, um, he has an essay on the notion of Torah Sheba al which is a little bit related to the, uh, some of the topics we'll be learning. And he, he follows the following idea. He quotes a pasuk which describes Yirmiyahu's ranting against the, the evils of the nation of Israel at the times of the destruction of the second of Midrash. And here's what he says in the first source. This is the words of Yer- Jer- Jeremiah. It's because you have, you have left me. What's Vayanakru just by the, by the way? Vayanakru? Made strange. Made alien, he says. It's one of these fascinating words. This is a word which has opposite meanings in the same root. Like Lahakir means to recognize and Lanakir means to make alien. Just one, just interesting, one of these fascinating words in Hebrew. <laughs> right, there's a, just, a, what was that? Thank you. I was looking for that, Elliot. I really was. I was, it was, I was searching through the recesses of the filing cabinets at the back of my mind right now, and I could not access that one. And so, yes, a contronym. Thank you. There are a number of these in Hebrew, just out of interest. Another one is lesakel. Lesakel means to remove stones. It also means to stone. Right? There's, there's, not, there's a number of these things. This actually appears in Parashas Mikates, this this Vayisnaker. Yosef it's in the same, the, the, about Yosef's alienating himself, but recognizing his brothers. Anyway, so this is, this is, um, the, the, um, this, this is how it's used over here. He's saying that you are now using this place. What place do you think he's referring to? The base of the Mingdash. You're serving other gods in the base of the Mingdash. Share lo yodaum, heimo vavoseihem, umalche yehudo, malu esa mokomazeh dam nikiyim. And you fill this place of, you, you sacrifice to all these gods which you did not know, your parents did not know, they were foreign cultures, and you spilled blood, innocent blood in this place that refers to a specific incident. He's talking about a prophet who was killed in the precinct of the base of Megdash, Zachariah, whose, whose cavern you can visit still today in the, down in the Kidron Valley. And, and you built these, these uh, temples for sorry, not temples, but these um, altars for the Baal God to burn your children um, in fire. I did not command this, I did not speak about this, and I didn't even think about this, so to speak, says God, in the, in the voice of Yirmiyahu. And um, so what, what he's essentially saying, the gist of what he's saying is, is that you've adopted all these foreign cultures, and that's clearly not what I wanted, that God says. This is, not, this is nothing I intuited or wanted from you as well. So the Gomorrah is curious to note that there's three descriptions of what it is Hashem didn't want, right? There is, uh, Yirmiyahu doesn't just say this, he, he sounds to be rather emphatic about this. He goes on to say, And um, so the Gomorrah says that actually refers to three specific cases where you may have made the mistake. Because ultimately, what's he saying? What's he, what's he bemoaning at this, in this last passage over here? What aspect of foreign pagan culture is he saying that, that Israel was submerged in? Child sacrifice, right? What's called infanticide. Okay, so why is it that, 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 that you're doing this? This is something I never, ever, ever wanted. 
And in those three evers, right, the, the Gemara says there's specific incidents that people perhaps may have misconstrued. So the Gemara in Tanis on Daftalad Amar Aleph tells us, Child of Mesha, the king of Moab. Hang on for a second. So this is an episode that occurs at the beginning of Malachim Beis, where there's a, what happens is that Israel and Judea have vassal states. So on the, on the east side of the Jordan, they, are, they, they have tax-paying kingless states called Edom, Moab, um, Ammon for most of the time at the beginning of the first commonwealth until at which time that they became weaker Israel and Judea became weaker and ultimately they rebelled as, assumed their own kings and stopped paying taxes and at this critical moment what happened was is that Israel and Judea banded together um, Ahav Yehoshaphat banded together to go and to quell a rebellion um, under Moab, Mesha Mesha, we can read his steely today. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, we can actually read what he says about how he started the rebellion. And um, he talks about the rise of Omri and Achav and how he broke away. And at this point in time, what happens is that Judea and Israel pulled together their remaining vassal state, Edom, and they gathered their armies. So the three armies went out to fight against Me- uh, Mesha, the king of Moab. Um, Mesha was not a Yiddishism of Moshe, just clarifying that. Okay. <laughs> You know, you sometimes hear that, and he's like, "Oh, the from fellow." No, this guy was this guy was not the from fellow. He, you could read you could read what he says about himself and his gods. It's all it's all in the British Museum today. But so anyway, so um, the, the, in this battle, it's there's a very curious episode that happens at the end of the battle. It's not exactly clear what what what, what is going on, but it sounds like somebody's child is being killed on the ramparts. And the one possibility is is that he abducted the king of Edom as a collateral against this particular situation. And when the king of Edom banded together with Israel and Judea, he murdered the king of Edom as a, as a way of, of, of saying that you do not have the right to attack me to, um, as well. That's the one possibility. But the other is, is that it wasn't the king of Edom's son he was killing, but rather it was his own son. Why in the world would he do that to this last-ditch effort? And perhaps one of the ideas is that he learned from the fact that, that God commanded the Akeda, and clearly he did not read the Mepharshim, but at, in the end of the day, he thought that maybe this is the way to gain, to, to gain divine consent and, and support for, in this war, and so he slaughtered his son um, over there, and so Hashem says, Hashem says, that was not what I intended. And then he goes on further. I did not speak about this, refers to Yiftach. What has Yiftach got to do with child sacrifice? His daughter, he made this, this neder, and God says, that was not what I wanted at all. No, no, no. Yiftach's business, whether he killed his daughter, made her celibate, whatever it was, that was not what Hashem said. Which is amazing. <laughs> because I don't know, if you, we're going to come back to this in a moment. It sounds like, it sounds like when Abraham received that, ro- 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 that, that command in, in Genesis 22, in Bereshah's Chavbeis, it sounds like Avraham Vinu thought that's what God wanted. We'll have to come back to that in, in a second. But Hashem is saying, I don't want child sacrifice, so why are you doing that? That's what Yirmiyah was essentially saying. And these three episodes, these three, ex- um, well, so to speak, phrases relate to those three things. Yes, Ilana. A hundred percent. You can ask about a lot of things because, you know, uh, it, 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 what ultimately comes out of this is you see emerging from this is that that the cost was still less than the benefit, than the outcome, which means to say that that sometimes there's a risk in uh, and, and a cost that will come with a certain lesson. And like, let's, let me give you an example. Like, like when it's, uh, the Torah says, Nase Adam. I mean, like, you know, Hashem omnisciently knew there were going to be the, the, this band of sectarian Jews who would ultimately say that there's going to be a trinity, right? And, and knowing that's going to happen, isn't Nase Adam, isn't that just like, and, and knowing that there's paganism way before that, and that, you know, that Christianity and, and paganism were very closely related, certainly at the beginning, and, and knowing that people are going to look into the Bible and say, look, there must be multiple creators. I mean, that's such a risk. Why for posterity would you allow such a thing to, to exist? And the answer is, is that apparently 
that the risk of that misinterpretation is less than the benefit of the lesson it's teaching. That's, that's what it must be. So now what is the benefit of the lesson that it's teaching? That's, that's for us to figure out. But it must be that that's the situation because otherwise God would not have given us something so misleading, which, which, is, um, which, is, which therefore it's upon us to understand what the, the, the benefits because obviously that's a high stakes lesson. Tibi? I don't understand. You don't have to go to the portion. The Kedah itself, at the end, he says, don't do it. Good, yeah. So let's come back to that. Yeah, we're going back to it in a second because that's the most mysterious of these, of all of these. However, you'll notice something else, and that is that the Gomorrah is essentially saying there's three parts to this phrase. One, two, three. There's one, two, three of this phrase, and it says that each of them relates to an episode. And you notice the episodes are going in reverse chronological order, right? That's going from Mesha to Yiftach to... Um, that's, that's from Melochim to Shoftim to, to, to Beratius, right? However, if you actually analyze the phrases themselves, the phrases are not of equal gravity. So you'll notice the first one is Asher Lo I do not command, Lo Dibarti, and Lo Al Alibi. Which is the strongest of those phraseologies? It's Tzivisi, the, the first. So it's actually moving in, in a softer, it's moving softer. So I do not command. Do not speak about, speaking is in commanding, right? Speaking is describing a situation. It's like sort of on Shabbos. It's like, it's dark in this room, right? <laughs> so, the, the, um, and then Loyal Salibi wasn't even articulated. It's just conceptualizing. So, so you'll look at the Targum and notice something interesting what the Targum says. And this is really the crux of this idea today. It's a, v- a remarkable idea. Listen to how the Targum t- translates this. Yonas Amin Ozil does this differently to the Gemara. And he says... So this is, and you built these, these, these altars to sacrifice the children, so far so good, right? This is all Aramaic of the same phrase. That I did not command where in my Torah. He's adding that, that's his interpretation. And what's Dodi that I did not send forth in the hands of my prophets. That's a later stage. And was not even something which I wanted. There was no rava. There was no will in front of me. Which means, essentially, if you think about this, the way that he's describing this is that there are different stages of the giving of the Torah, if you think about what he's saying, right? Here's Tzivisi. That's what the Torah says. That's commands. Then there's Dibarti. That's what the prophet said. And then the most curious one is like, Arava Kadama. There's not, not my will. What does that mean precisely? That's, that's, the, that's the idea that we need to understand. It sounds like there's a development of Torah. It sounds like there's a development of the idea of God, which is progressing in a, we'll call it, less frontal, less directed expression of what Hashem wants. That's, that's what the Targum seems to be saying. How so? Let's, let's unpack this a little further, because this is the crux of the matter we have. So we'll, we'll take an example. There's, a, there's numerous examples of this, but this is perhaps codified in halacha. Very fascinating halacha, halacha which we all know, we all do. It's, it's codified in our machzor, whether we like it or not. The Gemara tells us in source 4, We're supposed to say three parts of our musaf davening. It's the most unusual musaf of the entire year, in that it is not seven or to, or, or 19 brachas, as most Shemona Esrays are. It is nine brachas long, the Musaf of, of Rosh Hashanah. It's an anomaly. Why? Because instead of three, three beginning and end, and then one in the middle like Yom Tov or Shabbos, it has three at the beginning, three at the end, and three in the middle. And as Malchiyah, Zerachan, and Shabbos, doesn't occur any other time in the Jewish year. He says, What are they for? Malchiyah, Kadesh, Tamni, Chuni, Aleichem. Malchus is honored to, to uh, coronate me over you. And the Zikrona so that your memories should ascend in front of me favorably, whatever that means. The Ka Uvamo and how the Shofar with a, with, through the horn. Now, there's, a, there's obviously a lot that needs unpacking here, what's precisely these, why these are so thematic today. What does memory mean in front of God precisely? God doesn't have the storage cabinets in the back that uh, are hard to reach. We have that. Uh, but so what does that precisely mean exactly? But be it as it may, the Ritva points out that actually, if you look very carefully, Rabbi Yontov, Rabbi Yontov, um, Ben Avraham Ashvili, who was a, one of the great Spanish commentators on the, uh, on the Gomorrah, uh, one of the students of the Ramban of Nachmanides, says the, uh, says the following observation. He says that if you actually look carefully in Halacha, you'll find that each of these ideas of Malchia, Zechonos, and Shofros are actually precisely 
derived from Sukkim. Right, they're derived from Sukkim. So he gives an example. Let's take a look at five. He says, "Wahad to Kamar Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu Imur Lufana Malchias Zichrones Shayfros Mishum Daafal Gav De Psuke Malchias Zichrones Shayfros Ena Min Atara Ela Midrabaron Kide Prishna." He says this idea of saying these three things Rosh Hashanah isn't because the Torah legislates that. That's not what the Torah said. Does the Torah? If you look throughout the entire Torah, you'll never say to see that the Torah says this this concept. It is a rabbinic enactment. However, Mikol Makom he says. However, Mima Shamra Torah Zichron Trua. Yesh nilmod shiraui lahaskir pesukei trua beupsukei zichron. The Torah says, what is the day Rosh Hashanah described as? It's a day of Yom Zichron Trua, remembering the truth. So, so it sounds like that the idea of mentioning of memory is significant to the to the process. Okay, umalchios nafgalon, and we learn out the idea of malchios from kamoi shedarshu razal, as our sages taught misipure misifre. In the Medrash Halacha, we pass the Gvayalachem lezikaron ifnei alakechem ani Hashem. Alakechem sheein dhamudlay marani Hashem alakechem elaze banav. This is an example. Mikol makom shato amir zikronos ato samich loy malchios. The Mesifrei says that any time you mention memory, you have to mention the 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 coronation of the kingship of Hashem. And that's how they learned to put these psukim which relate to tekias. Mishum hachik sani Rabbi Akiva. Anything which has a hint in the pasuk is worthwhile doing. The Torah did not legislate it as real law, but allowed the sages to do that in its place. This is a truthful idea. Now listen to what he says. He has the, he has the critical part of his observation. And I'm going to reject those, those commentators who might say, There are those who say, Rabbinic law came along and said, Hey, this is a very nice idea. We'd like to introduce this new concept, this new practice. And you know what? We'll try to find some sort of hook to hang our hat on. Right? So we'll look at the Torah, we'll use our you know, rabbinic um, compendium or, and uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of Torah, and we'll find a place that has something we can you know, sort of support our theory on. But really, the Torah said what it said. We say what we want to say. But it's nice if we had a mnemonic device, or if we not, it's nice if we could somehow relate it thematically to what the Torah says. But truly speaking, the Torah never really intended what we were saying. That's, that's a new, that's a new, Davar uh, Chadash. He says, Chas um, V'Shalom. He says, that, 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 that's, that, that's a, an egregious error. Yishtaka Davar. The matter should be forgotten. and should not be said. Shezu Das Minusu. It is heresy to make such a suggestion. Observes the Ritva. Aval, he has his, he has his theory. HaTorah heira bekach umosro chiyuv adavar likpoa lechachomim im yirtzu. The Torah gave us a certain tradition or a certain idea or a ethos that, that, uh, that was hoping and wishing for the sages to note on. Im yirtzu kamosh nema vasisa apia adavar ashe agir lucha ulefichach when the Chachamim find a, a hint or a dependency in the Torah, what does that mean? They're not sitting there and saying, wouldn't it be nice if Judaism had a more cultural flavor with this new idea that we just, uh, we just thought up and sucked out of our thumb. Meaning, the Torah itself is pregnant with all the ideas that, that, are, that are worth expanding upon and hoping that the sages will pick up on that. And therefore, Nasmachta isn't something that I, hold, I, I hang my hat on, but rather something that I tease out of the general meaning. So when it says, Yom Zichron Shua, it means to say that the Torah was hoping that we would take advantage of mentioning the notion of Zichronos on, Shofa, on, on Rosh Hashanah, even though it didn't say, Thus shall thy, shalt thy do. Uh, um, and that is the, the observation that he, that he's making. In other words, therefore, where, where is the space of the sages? Where does sages, sages exist, essentially, in this, in this, in this uh, perception or this conception reality? They are the interpretation or the expansion of really essentially, the second or the third of those categories as mentioned by Yirmiyahu. Also al-libi and dibarti. Meaning I may describe it, but without 
saying you have to do it, I may want it without articulating it, and therefore how, what, what happens to that? Well, what happens to that is later on in history, the sages will say that's what Hashem wants. Fascinating, fascinating observation. This is where the Rebbe Khanan uh, Vasman writes it. He says, I mean, source six. When the sages make a law and they say, folks, you know what? There's this new thing, it's called benching. <laughs> We're going to make sure that when you smell something, it's called birkasarach. Right? When, you get, when, you, when, when, you, when you blow the shofar, you're going to say a bracha or before it. Torah never said so. Torah never said so at all. When they say this, that means to say they're expanding on what the Torah wanted of us. They're just crystallizing it into a finite practice. All of us have innately an idea of what it is, what the rights of Hashem is. And all our actions are in his, for his stead. Right, so it may be true that a person, a mind is not obligated biblically, but rabbinically is. What does that mean rabbinically is? That means that the Torah wants us to be in training, wants us to be learning, practicing beforehand. So it's not just, oh, it's only mid-rabbonon because they thought it would be nice that. No, that's where it starts. And therefore he says one last thing to close this thought. And that's why he comes back to our Pasuk. There are three subdivisions of Torah. So therefore, there is what the Torah prescribes, that's a Mitzvah Midaraisa. There's what's called Divrei Kabbalah, which is what the prophets said, like Yeshayahu talking about what Shabbos should look like, right? The way we speak, the way we talk, the way we act. And then there's things which even the Nevi'im didn't say, but is emanating from the Ratzana Torah, what the Torah wants, converging with what we know is right, and that, that group that was, so to speak, has the baggage to be able to do that, said, well, we're going to crystallize this into practice. And as they're doing that, that is Ra'avakadamai. That's the more subtle aspects of Torah, of the spirit of the law being legislated by the sages. But that's what he said. It's limited to this period. In other words, you have post-Torah, you have Kanaka, you have Regila. Ah, have excellent. Excellent. Precisely. And in fact, maybe only in fact. Meaning, Phil, the point you're raising, in fact, is, is, is precise. You will see that the expansion of Torah Shvalpeh in this part, this third part, actually didn't occur before. And we're going to get to that point in just a moment. Yeah. I want to actually for hone in on that in a second because Purim is relevant upon us. Between, is there a That's a good question. So where does Chumrah arrive from? Without, you know, this is a big, a big, big question in general. Where does a Chumrah arrive from in general? Is, is the, just the classic way that, that Chumras exist, just to understand what a Chumrah. Chumrah means something which is more, um, so to speak, stringent. So where does that arrive in practice? So it really actually, in general, arrives in practice uh, as an outcome of a dispute. That's usually how Chumrah arrives. So as an example, in the, the way that we have it, so let's say, you know, the, the, there's, there's periods of times where the Torah expands and there's periods of times where it is contracted. So the Torah can sort of be seen as, a, um, you know, so to speak, this vast expansion of ideas and then it being belted back in and then expanding again. So as examples, the, you know, the Mishnah and the Gemara were times where there was a convergence or there was a, you know, a, a, a contraction of all ideas into one space. And then the, the, it was expand, 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 before many ideas and it was pulled back. And then again, uh, one of the most critical times that happened was that the uh, codification of the Shulchan Aruch, right? So the Shulchan Aruch was taking really a, a, a huge expansion of practice of ideas that was found from the medieval sages. So we're talking about, we're, we're talking about like, you know, lots of writing, an abundance of writing from the year you know, roughly 1100 to 1500. And you have this, this, this explosion of ideas coming from Eastern Europe, coming from Spain, 
no, but from Israel, but mostly mostly um, Eastern and Western Europe, essentially. That was the, the Sephardic or Ashkenazic trend, and, the, and those practices are starting to diverge as expansion is happening. And then the Rav Yosef Kara and the Ramah essentially sort of pull this all back into one space. And what often will happen is, is that in that process, they will, uh, they will say, Yesh Omrim this and Yesh Omrim that. Because you'll have, you'll have different practices, and they're not willing sometimes, sometimes they are, but they're not willing to disc- discredit one over the other. Now, sometimes they do, and those, those will fall by the wayside of halacha, and they're not going to feature in halacha. But a lot of times you'll have a yesh omrim as, as this practices A or practices B. And a chumrah is, is where the chay nohug is that the, the ramah, the shulchan aruch, will say, we're going to practice like B. And it's, and, but then you'll see later Mepharshim saying, but a Baal Nefesh, because the other one was codified, because it still exists, we'll call it an halachic rubric, then, 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 then there's room for that space of Churma. That's where Churma is an outcome of dispute. So it's sort of trying to, the, the, the further extremes are sort of still play, play a function in halacha. The same place for a Kula, and Bidyevad and Lacharchila, right? So Lacharchila would be to do like both A and B. But Bidyevad, if B is more makil, will rely on B in circumstances X, Y, and Z. Right, so that's that's where it is. Whereas, let's say in systems which are a lot a lot more monolithic, like Chabad, there's less belachatchila and bedieved and chumrah. Right, so Chabad only has very much, so to speak, one trajectory. Right, what the Alter Rebbe said, Paskin and Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch Arav, yeah, that's it. So there's it's it's very simple. Sfardim to a certain degree like this as well. Right, if you read the, the teachings of Chacham Avadia, everything was back to Maran. It's very monolithic. It's not there's there's less space for extra opinions because it doesn't really count. Right, so there'll be less room for Khumra, but that's where it comes from. But you're raising a, a, a great, a very important point, just in and of itself. It's a, it's a, it's worthwhile looking at. But but the idea that you're one step beyond the idea, which is that the idea here, which is he's suggesting, is that that the, the the attempt of the sages throughout history was not to publish books, <laughs> but rather to find out what it was that the Torah really wanted in the circumstance. And we're trying to turn a ra'avaka damai, which, which, what God wanted, into what we do. Right? So like a classic example is, let's say the brachos example. The Gomorrah says that before the times that Anshak Deslagdala formalized what the Siddur looks like to a large degree, what would people do precisely? So it describes the situation of Binyamin Raya. Right, Binyamin was the shepherd, and he lives out there in the farmstead. Spends most of his time in the sun with his uh, with his flocks. So when he pulled out his piece of bread, which he had just toasted on, on top of his uh, little little um, iron uh, um, iron pot with coals underneath it, he would say, "Brich Rachman is a high pitta." So he would say in Aramaic, which was the lingua franca at the time, um, uh, 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 and he would say, "God bless, God, God, God be blessed because of this bread." That was what he did, right? So he didn't have a formula. He didn't have a sitter. That was his organic expression of thanking God. And what the Chazal said is that that works, but now we're going to give you a formula. We're going to, so that, what they're essentially saying is they're formalizing what it was that God wanted from us, which beforehand was more of an organic person-by-person realization. That's what Rabbi Khan was saying was the process over here, which is brilliant. Just a brilliant observation. Yes, Silana. So when it comes to, for example, women and the historical uh, disagreements, is that because in which in which what specific is I'll be thinking? Good question. Right it's a good question. Like, yes, you know, I I I think I think what you're raising right now is something which is more more recently, more of a more recent trend as 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 it happens. At least, at least today, when publishing has become an issue, um, and one could question the viability of this model today, where there are multiple different camps, which are all within the Torah camp about specific critical issues that are burning today. We aren't out the tunnel yet to be able to sort of see from, from a perspective where this is, um, and perhaps, and your your husband is just definitely more adept at 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 this at this reflection. But there were the, the historically speaking, if, if we think about it. You know, it's easier to look back and say, oh, when Chazal, those who fell within the Venn diagram of who were Chazal, what they decided about general topics, that's what we can apply this to. While we're still in it and there's still much debate and, and, we, and the further, further from Sinai we get, the less clarity we have and the more invested we are in the issues of the day, I think it's harder for us to see what, like, you know, the Ratzalah Torah expressing itself in this, although certain camps would like to say that there's only one group which has exclusive rights on Ratzalah Torah today, and that, that becomes more complex. 
and I, I and and it's it's very hard to live in a world where Ratzon Torah can be trademarked, and uh, and there's no other space for any any anyone else to have, and that becomes more complex today. To me, I don't think they're saying when they don't publish a picture. I don't oh, no, no, I don't want to get into this specific no, debate. No, because <laughs> the word was used, women are evil. I don't think they're viewing it as women are evil. I think they're men are evil. I think that's the point. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's precisely the issue. Okay, no, no comment. I, I, I have strong feelings on this topic, but we're not going to get into it um, right now. Um, there, there are many other examples of, of these these ideas. Just like give an example. The Torah says this this idea. It says in, pa- in Pasha Zazino, Pasha Zazino is, is a song. Pasha Zazino is beautiful, poetic. It's written. The syntax is poetic. And Hashem is saying, ha, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is describing Hashem. Ki Hashem When I call out to God, then let me give greatness to Hashem. What a beautiful statement. What does it mean? What does it mean precisely? So Chazal has multiple levels of meaning. They say, well, this could mean benching. Oh, no, sorry, Birkas Torah. It could mean Zimun. What, so what are Chazal saying? They're saying we're intuiting that it means to say that there's special times when we need to mention God's name. And in mentioning God's name, we need to formalize the way to do that. Right? So the Torah is describing this beautiful concept. What they're saying is like, let's figure out what that means. Let's make it easier for people to work out what to do, when to do, and how to do this idea. That doesn't mean to say Chazal said, wouldn't it be nice every time we had a meal and there's uh, three men or three women together, you know, boom, let's do a Zimon. That, you know, that this, wouldn't that be nice? We'll have extra room to publish on our benches now, Birkonim. Like, that's not what's happening, says the Ritva. What they're doing is they're saying, is this is what the Torah would want us to be doing here. Let's turn it into something which is a practice. That's the, the observation that, he, that he's making. This comes back now to a very, very fascinating Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. I, I, I never understood this Mishnah until, I, I, until this. This Mishnah contrasts two individuals. And yes, we like to say good and bad, but they, I never put them in the same box because these two people don't really have too much in common with each other. The Mishnah says the following in Source 10. It says, Call me sheyesh biyada shloshu dvarim alalu mitalmido shal Avraham avinu. Shloshu dvarim alcheirim mitalmido shal Bilam arasha. Like, why Bilam and Avraham? They didn't live at the same time. They didn't to preach the same values. Right? They, they're very just different people. And yet the Mishnah suddenly puts them all together. And then it goes and says, <laughs> So it, it describes a good eye, lowly spirit, and a humble, uh, a humble nefesh is of Avram, and the opposite being from Bilam. And I always went like, what, is, what, what do the two have to do with each other? And the answer really is, is, is their way that they looked at God's words, says Rabbi Chodin Vassaman. Because let's, let, let's think about it from, from, from Bilam. You know, Bilam gets this delegation of, of folks from Moab and Midian, and they say, we'd like you to curse his people. And he says, just hang on a second, he goes to sleep, he has a dream, and God says no. So he comes in the morning and he says, you know, I, I, you didn't offer me enough money. Right, right. So they come back again, and at least one of the delegations comes back again, and they say, you know, whatever you want, a house of gold, silver, you know, you say it, a blank check, everything's right. So he comes out to God, he says, please, God, please. Right. And God says, well, okay, you know, if you're going to go, but listen, whatever you, whatever's going to happen, I'm going to make sure that you say. So Bilam says in the morning, folks, we're on. Deal's good. Yeah, let me, let me fill in the check. We're on the way, right? And there he goes and off he goes. And he's, he's running ahead and there, there the delegation's behind him and then the donkey and then the angel and, and he's getting really frustrated. He can't get his money as fast as he wanted to. And, like, and uh, the man's practically salivating, you know, at this point in time. And then the angel reappears and he goes on to have a conversation with this angel without batting an eyelid as if this might be some sort of divine providence that this might not be the best of, of intuitions that he had. And if you think about it, this, this, this man, you can either see him as, you know, patently evil, right? You know, he just, he just wants to go against God's will or patently stupid, right? He, he's just, he just, he, he can't get the sense of what it is that God's trying to convey to him. When God said no, it meant no. And when he said, well, okay, that meant to, that meant, that meant to say is, I don't want you to do this and I'm going to severely limit you. In fact, I would say, just in my own observation, is that I would say that the, the three times that, that Bilam's donkey experience is happening, each of those times you notice that the, the, the space that he's walking in becomes narrower, right? So as it goes off the road, and then it presses on the, on the wall, and then it just sits down because it's too narrow, right? That's really what's happening with Bilam. That was the, the metaphor for Bilam himself, isn't it? He had three times he was supposed to try to curse the nation of Israel, and each time he tries and the, the space becomes narrower until he just collapses, right? So he, he, he's, what essentially is he doing? He's trying to, so to speak, see if there's a way around what God said, right? 
It's like, you know, dad said I should be back by 9.30. Did he mean exactly 9.30? Back? Like, in the neighborhood? Like, you know, like, how, what did dad really mean, right? That's, that's like that teenager. Like, how, how much did God really mean about this? That's what he's, and each time he tries to experiment more, I mean, what happens is, is, is the pathway closes until ultimately he realizes that this is not what God wanted, right? And so Bilam is a person who, has a, who struggles with what it is that God wants, not what God says, if you think about that, right? He's, God has said something, and he's going to take it very literally because he knows that he wants what he wants, and therefore he'll try to fit it back into, retrofit it back into what, what Hashem wants. Now, when it comes to Avram Avinu, it's precisely the opposite. Let's go back to that example that I carried for a moment. So the, the, at the end, Hashem says, reaches out, and Avram has the knife in the air, the sun, the sun on the pyre, and, and uh, the, Torah, the Torah says, Don't, don't, don't do it. Hold back, the angel calls out. He says, now I know that you, you're a Yerei Elohim. Rashi says, What does he mean now I know? Rashi says, it's a strange thing. Amar Abba, Amar Avram, um, he says, hey, I'm going to explain your, your words. Wait a second. I don't understand you, Hashem. Today, you want me to kill him, but yesterday you said he's going to be my, my, my legacy. So like, how does that all square? And now you're saying to me, don't sacrifice. This goes backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. What do you want, Hashem? Hashem says, I'm not changing anything I meant. What I says, Hashem says, I asked you to bring him up to the mountain. All I meant was bring him up and bring him down. So Hashem says, my words were never made empty. Now you think about yourself for a second. So it was all a big misunderstanding. <laughs> Avram Avinu didn't understand what Hashem wanted. That what it was, that's what it was. This whole episode, Avram Avinu misinterpreted what Hashem wanted. Is that what Rashi is saying? That, you know, like, <laughs> this, whole, this whole episode, and forevermore we talk about Akedah and Kurgan God is waxing poetic, and like, no, but it was all just a misinterpretation of what Hashem was wanting precisely. Is that what, is that what, is, is that what it means? And, and, the, and the answer is no. Avram Avinu knew precisely what Hashem wanted. What Hashem is saying to him is that my word ultimately will not be made hollow. My word technically will not be falsified. But you know what I wanted and you listened to it. If Avraham was Bilam, what would he say? He would say precisely this. Well, God, technically speaking, you said up. So I brought him up. In fact, I got to the base camp of Haramoria and we're gone. We took the picture, got the selfie and we're out. Right? Because that's what you said. Isn't that right, uh, Hashem? But that, that Avram Avinu understood that it's not what Hashem said, it's what Hashem wanted. And it may be true at the end that the words will not be nullified, but the will of Hashem was what he was seeking to do. Even though the will of Hashem was at odds with everything he believed at in all his core values, everything he professed to the rest of the world, and it wasn't technically what God said, because you could reinterpret what God said, but that was still worth listening to. Therefore, says Rabbi Khan and Vasiman, he says in source 13, coming back to where we started, What was the son of Bilam? What was his son? He knew what Hashem wanted, and this was against it. Bilam was the person who everything was about what I wanted and I'll try to fit it into the law that's given to me or the legal system of Alkain. Omar loy ucha lavores pi Hashem. What does it mean I won't, I won't transgress the word of Hashem? Pi dai deka. Specifically, the word of God. Aval ratzon Hashem lo hayo chashu be'enav la'asos of azoi rishasai. He was a man who lived just by what it was in the law. I remember that a number of years ago we were, we, uh, we had, uh, we, we, in, in uh, advanced pastoral psychology, we had a fellow who, who, who came in and he worked in advertising for many years. He was uh, in, in, the, in the heyday of, um, of MTV, if you remember the, the before, before smart technology. Um, so, and, 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 and you know, to, in order to, and already then, I mean, it's, it's much, much worse now, but already then, what they, you know, uh, you know the, the advertising industry specifically targets different population groups and their interests. And today it's even more so 
Remember where where they will find they will, they, what they will do is they'll they'll find the specific interests of teens and they'll try to ensure that it, the parents are not the gatekeepers for the information that they're receiving, and um, so they they will target them in, with the the with the lesser developed frontal cortex issues that teenagers experience, certainly young boys, um, young men, and 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 produce content which will be very alluring and exciting for people in that bracket to, to, to be involved. And like, you know, and they'll have things like, you know, in, in, the, in the good old day with MTV, it says, you know, before watching this, what is your age? And if you just put in 18, then you can uh, watch whatever the content it is. And, and, and today it's even worse. Today, today the algorithms that are working on TikTok and, and Facebook and YouTube are, they're, 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 they're not just working on what you looked and watched, your viewership, but they're also trying to find an algorithm for your specific class and interest for what you may be interested in as well. And this is all happening as autoplay. So I mean, there's no, there's no, right? So he's, so I remember the, this fellow said a, re, a remarkable thing. He said, he said, I worked in advertising for all these years and I developed these algorithms. He says, and you're going to say to me, like, don't you have a child yourself? Don't you have, don't you have children? Do you, do you not have any morals or scruples? Yeah, how, how could you put it, putting things out there, which you know is going to be destructive morally, is going to uh, you know present ideas, pictures, thoughts, um, which which are really not appropriate for our children to be to, to to be watching. Do you not have your own children? Do you not care about? Do you do you sleep well at night doing this? And you know what the answer he says is that that everybody in in my industry would say. What the answer is? The answer is is that what is moral is legal, and if you don't change the law, that means to say you as a person in a democratic society don't believe it's immoral. Meaning, the onus of responsibility is on society to regulate anything which is immoral and the, and the advertising industry will work up to the very glass ceiling of what is legal because that's what you as the consumer have told me is moral. That's the, that's the answer they will give, which is a shocking observation because it takes a long time for us to regulate back bad things. Right? We usually we let them all out in the wash and then it takes us a few years after the destruction has happened and a few generations and all the people have been hospitalized for, and, <laughs> and all the things that have happened in whatever it's environmentally, morally, all these things we were, and technology. We were, we we're in the process of now dialing back a little bit, right? We're now in that process after having seen, you know, a few decades of this already. But now we're regulating back. But in the meantime, until it is legal, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not immoral. And that's precisely what Bilam lived. That was exactly how he said. He said, "I don't understand. Did God really say it? Or did he not say it?" And the answer we, uh, that that well, that that, that Yemiah was saying was, "That's the problem. Is is there's, there's that God does convey what He wants through His civisi, but also through His dibarti and Rava Kadamai and Al Salibi. And what Al Salibi is equally as important because that's the way the Chazal legislate what He wanted. That's what that's what it comes down to. And that's a very very we'll call it subtle point. That's a point that's not so lost. I'd like to just conclude perhaps." With an idea, uh, just uh, just by a show of hands, who was here at Sula Shlishes yesterday? Um, yes, I'm sure. Okay, so a few people, I just want to just reiterate one point Rabbi Howard made yesterday, and I think it's so incredibly important. He said, and Phil comes back to you to your to your point um, as well, um, which which is the because we're in the, we're in the, we're in the, the we're really on the cusp of, uh, of 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 Purim. He says the, he saw the, the following idea is is so powerful. Uh, the Gemara tells us that, um, uh, in Shabbos that, um, that when, Chaz, when the nation of Israel accepted the Torah, there was an element of coercion. Whether that was Tachti Sahara, God held the mountain above them. More fi- that's more figurative. What the Meshachach understands is that when the Almighty removes a number of the veils of reality, there is no choice, right? It's not like God's holding a gun to us. It's just when reality is so obvious to us, it's like, do you have the choice to jump off the building? You, you do. Do you have a choice to j- jump, off, uh, jump into a fire? You do. But any rational, healthy person wouldn't. Right, because there is no really choice, even though there is a choice. When God showed him that God showed the nation of Israel that doing what I, uh, what I, what I, what I'm telling you is reality, and not doing it is stepping into the fire. They have a choice, but there's not really a choice. That's what Tachti Sahar means. So God said, "Okay, um, yeah, uh, so what, what do you say?" And so the nation of Israel said, yeah, yeah, absolutely." You know, so the, but that that wasn't really choice. So the Gemara then says, So technically speaking, they could come back afterwards and say, "Really, we didn't. Really, it was under coercion." Right? And if you think about that, that doesn't mean to say coercion as in just then. But what it means to say is that while there is such an imminence of God, it's very hard for there to be a space for human, human choice. That's essentially what the Gemara is asking. Um, and so the Gemara says, no, Hadar kiblu They accepted it again in the times of Achashverosh. And the words used in the Megillah in Perik Tess, which is actually a ksiv, it's written in singular, like the acceptance of nation of Israel, is very similar to 
uh, of the reacceptance of the Torah. Lots of questions in this Gemara. What happened for the thousand years in between? Didn't they have the Moedah Rabbah arise? The base of was destroyed in the meantime. So there's a lot of, lot of questions that could be asked in this, in this Gemara. It's a tapering end of prophecy. Maybe there's less, more space for human and, and, um, acceptance. But what does this Gemara really mean? Rabbi Howe said the most remarkable thing. Rabbi Howe said, you know what, you know what the, uh, the answer is? Is the Gemara describes that there, there were 48 um, canonized prophets and seven canonized prophetesses. And none of them, none of them introduced a new law until the times of Purim. Let's fill it to your point. They never introduced a new law until the times of Purim. Megillah, essentially, was one of the first of the rabbinic class of new enactments, which was now not as a biblical commandment, but as a rabbinic commandment. Every year from here onwards, and we're still doing it, we're going to read Megillah, we're going to do Mishlach Manas, we're going to do, uh, do, do these, the, these actions. Which means, what is the difference between a person who's forced to do something and a person who's bought into the system is a person who's forced to do something does everything that it says in the book but no more because that's how they live a person who loves the system who's bought into it who's a maximalist in their employment is a person who doesn't just do what they were, the check boxes what they, they were told to what's in the job description and they clock out at 459 and 59 seconds but in the end of the day they, they go the extra mile where was the demonstration that we re-accepted the Torah? Because when we started taking what the spirit of the law was and turning it into legislation. And we started saying, we want to do more than what it is that you gave us as well. That's precisely the precise idea. The example that he gave was that if a fellow, you know, gets engaged and he, he really, you know, wants to do good by, by his fiance. And so what he does is he calls up his friends and he says, uh, so what should I be doing at this stage? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the eights and next? And they say, well, at this point in time, you should get, you know, a pearl bracelet. At this point in time, you should probably get this. So is that a demonstration of love? Not really. That's a demonstration of following the rules, essentially. Right, Duniak? It's acceptable that in the Cheder Yechud, it's acceptable in the first month anniversary, it's acceptable the sixth month. That's, that's, all, that's, all, that's all that's really happening. What real love is, is when a person figures out what it is that their beloved really likes. And it could be something as simple as a drink that he or she likes. It could be something as simple as um, that, they, that they do the dishes. Or they, 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 they go and make sure that, they, that, that, uh, that, that the, all the lights are out before going to bed. Something small. And going and doing that. Why? Not because they said it. And not because anybody else told you to do it. But precisely because... They want it because that's good for them. And that's what was happening at Purim. Purim was the first moment in history where you'll see an explosion of legislation, an explosion of the Torah Shabal Peh turning into law. Where did they come from? The answer is, is that this became the beginning of the time where we wanted to do what Hashem wanted, not just said. And that's the, the process that we've been witnessing over here. And that leads us to, to, to a very fascinating moment now. We think about Kelana coming back to your point is that, and that process has been continuing throughout history. And ironically, as much as there's been legislated, up to the point is as to which shoelace to tie first, right? You know, you, re you reach Al-Khanarach, there's still space for us to express our individuality and our intuition in the, the Torah itself. It's still a framework that gives us the space to be able to figure out what it is that Hashem wants for us in this particular session. Because our life is unique, our space is unique, the framework is similar, but there's still so much more space to value that human, human intuition in understanding what it is that the divine wants. So at the end of, at the end of this, the, this, this particular series, there is so much to think about in terms of this particular idea, the value of Hashem looking to us as human beings to find out what it is that He truly wants in these circumstances. We're going to start Bezra Hashem doing a, a Purim Shir next week and then a new series, which I'm very excited about Bezra Hashem, but we'll, we'll un uh, unveil uh, shortly, God willing. Thank you so much, Rudy.